0: Real quick before we dive into this episode of the podcast, be sure to grab your free PDF copies of my latest books at frugal.show forward slash free. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Frugalpreneur podcast. I am your host, Sarah St. John, and my guest today is an attorney, business strategist, and coach. She is a recovering big law attorney who spent two decades at a top tier international law firm representing Fortune 500 clients. Welcome to the show,
1: Ashley Jim. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, thank you for coming on. Can you give us a little bit more of your background, how you spent two decades in corporate presenting Fortune 500 clients? And then based on your story, it sounds like you just up and walked out one day to become an entrepreneur. I'd love to hear that story as well.
1: Yeah, it kind of went like that. I spent 20 years at a major law firm, 10 of which I was a partner. And I did what I like to call big, nasty litigation. I, I fought for a living in really high profile cases, managed really large teams across the country and had a ball. It was really a neat experience. I got to do some cool things, but a funny thing happened. I discovered podcasts and I was driving along one day listening to one of my favorite podcasts and, you know, I discovered mindset and business and wellness and all these things. And I just dove down a rabbit hole. So I was driving along one day and I happened to have just sold my wedding ring. And the podcaster says, we are going to Italy on a retreat, all the podcast fam. And I pulled over to the side of the road and I I emailed the info at email. And said, I'm going, whatever it is, I'm going. And it turned out to be exactly what I had gotten. The cost of the trip was exactly what I had gotten for the wedding ring. So here I am in Italy with nine other women, and I'm the only one on the corporate straight and narrow. And these women are talking about passive income streams and working from anywhere and laptop lifestyle. And, oh, you can pick your kids up from carpool you don't have to be at the office and pull revenue streams and my mind was just blown i got so excited and so curious i couldn't stop thinking about it so i ended up doing a lot of their legal work because i under they didn't know what they didn't know and in talking to them i kept seeing ways that i could help protect them but i was just doing that for fun and for free because i loved them and i spent about two more years in corporate law and one day i just I left. I couldn't stop thinking about being an entrepreneur, so I found a way to move into this space and start to help people like my friends. Wow, that's interesting. So did you build any
0: kind of like side hustle on to start with, or did you just kind of up and quit your job and figure it out from there?:
1: I guess the side hustle was really not an economic one. It was that I was learning how to represent folks without charge while I was at the law firm, but this sort of work, this legal work, didn't fit their model. I did try to uh, move into a a smaller firm that was a little bit more progressive and based online, great folks, and start to build this entrepreneur representation on the side. But when you start to market yourself as kick-ash law, the guys in suits don't think it's funny. It's not on brand. When you start to think about having your own website or marketing on Instagram, that's just not how law firms work, at least not in the traditional sense. And it just became apparent to me one day that I'm gonna have to figure this out on my own in a a whole new way of doing law. A traditional law firm is not gonna market in the way that most entrepreneurs do. And most entrepreneurs I'm finding want to be marketed to in a way that they understand in a way that they relate to their clients in the same way. And so it's not a knock against traditional law firms. It's just a different business model. And it's a different business model in what I do because it tends to be more flat rate Instead of you're on the clock and you start to bite your fingernails every time you talk to your lawyer for more than five minutes at the time, right? I do have a team that I work with. I don't do it all on my own, but it is my business.
0: One of the things that I saw is that you accidentally own a wine shop. I'm curious to hear that story. Yeah, it is
1: accidental. After I left the firm, I moved down to Florida, put my toes in the sand, traded high heels for flip-flops, I like to say, and started building businesses. And along the way, I had an opportunity to be a silent investor in a small wine shop in a tiny little coastal town, an historic place that's revitalizing after a hurricane. And I was just a silent investor. I don't know a whole lot about wine, but I drink it. And it was fun and it was fun to be a part of community. But my business partner had some family matters that resulted in her needing to leave the state. And so I find myself running a wine shop on the side. And it's been terrific because... I now understand brick and mortar. I now understand what it is to be all in entrepreneur, separate and apart from the law, but figuring out the business aspects of it, how to build community. It's been terrific.
0: So you've kind of done both things now, brick and mortar and online. What do you prefer? I mean, obviously with an online business model, there's a lot less overhead it's a lot less expensive, but what are your thoughts
1: comparing and contrasting the two? Gosh, they're so different. But then here are the similarities. It's about building community, right? If you are going to own a brick and mortar and be in a small town or any town for that matter, it's about building community. You just do it in a different way. I like the freedom of being able to work from a laptop, but I love being live and in person with the team of ladies that work at the shop. So it's really a balance. There are a lot of things that overlap. Some of the marketing efforts are are very similar.
0: I know one of your specialties is like contracts and negotiation. Can you explain maybe the different types of contracts a business owner would
1: need and why they should have them? Yeah, but let me ask you a question first. Can I do that? Oh, sure. When When I say contracts, when I say contracts, Let's put a contract in front of us. What is your reaction? What's your initial gut reaction? I need you to figure out a contract between you and your clients or you're going to collaborate on developing something with another entrepreneur. Will you have a contract in place?
0: I do have some now, but initially it's like overwhelm and not knowing where to start and just all the legal jargon and the expense may be involved. But I guess primarily
1: what needs to be included? I think a lot of the reaction I have found, it falls into different categories, but some of it is we're all friends here. I trust who I'm working with. It'll be fine. More mm-hmm. complete year in headlights, I don't even know where to start. Or this is going to be expensive. Or somebody put a contract in front of me and I just signed it. I didn't read it because I didn't understand it. I got through the first paragraph and the words just started to blur on the page. I didn't know what to look for. And so where I like to start with contracts is getting an understanding within our own selves of how do I feel about this? And what is this about? And Where is my pushback? Where is my hesitancy? Where's the reluctance to deal with this? Because it's been on my to-do list for six months as an entrepreneur. I know I need to do it, but that's not fun. I want to go create something that's more fun. So that's where I start with contracts. And then I can talk about why they matter. Yeah, definitely. That kind of
0: reminds me that the first thing you said about how, say it's a friend and you know them and so why would you need a contract? That actually reminds me. So before I got into online business, I had a photography business. I was doing weddings and portraits and I was doing a wedding for one of my best friends. And I had every client sign a contract, which protected me and them. It has Definitely, it has stuff in there that would protect them in case I did show up or whatever else, lost their photos or whatever. But because she was a friend, she was like, I think offended or something that I would need her to sign a contract so she wouldn't at first. And it was kind of this back and forth. Ultimately, finally, she did. But I think it like rubbed her the wrong way. So actually, maybe we can start there. Like, let's say you're doing something for a friend or family or someone that you know, and you're just going through your normal procedures with having a contract signed and everything. But let's say you get pushed back because they know you. Why would you need a contract? What are some thoughts there? And what would you encourage people, I guess, to say to that friend or family member in that situation?
1: Let me give you an example of when this happened to me. I was building out my lead magnet, and I am not skilled in the art of making it pretty, making it look amazing. So I called my friend who runs a company that manages that sort of thing for entrepreneurs. And I said, can you do this for me in a hurry? I'm on a deadline. And she said, yes, I'd be really happy to get started on that for you. It's going to cost this much, and I'll send you a contract. We're friends. She knows me. She knows I'll pay, but she handled it like a boss and a businesswoman. And at the end of the day, we are running a business and we are owners. And I think it's worthwhile stepping into that role as an owner. And if somebody is pushing back, then that should be a red flag. I'll give you another example. I had a client early on who was looking to start a business with a friend of hers. And they were so excited about it. And she was really reluctant to put this contract in front of her friend. And I said, look, this is a contract is an act of love. It's a friendship preserver. These are things you need to talk about before you go into business. Got her to put it in front of her friend. They sat down. They talked it through. It became apparent that under no circumstances were they going to be able to agree on how to work together. And they chose to scrap the business idea and maintain the friendship. And they're still friends today because they talked about it on the front end. So I like to say, and if somebody pushes back on you that is a friend, you can say to them, look, contracts are a relationship builder and a relationship preserver. They're going to build our relationship on the front end because we're going to talk about how we're going to work together. And they're going to preserve it on the back end so that if there's anything that happens between us, we have something to go back to, to take the emotion out of it and go back to the black and white.
0: That's a good point. And I think I tried to point out that it saves not just me, but them. It's a
1: hard conversation because you know how I asked you, how do you feel about a contract? Mm -hmm. How does she feel about a contract? Maybe get to the bottom of the emotion behind it. Mm-hmm. what's yeah. scary about that is that she doesn't understand it
0: yeah and that was over a decade ago and we haven't talked about it since we mm-hmm. eventually we will but just be like I'm yeah curious like what was the hesitancy or what was the problem so what types of businesses need a
1: contract well i think in every business there are two basic types of contracts going on. And when I say contract, it could be simply, so let's talk about what a contract is first. A contract is offer, acceptance, and consideration. So I make an offer to you, you accept what I've offered you, and we have an exchange of value, like a payment for services or something of that nature. When we have a business, we have basically two ways that we contract we offer client services or a product for sale. At my wine shop, we sell wine. It's really clear what the product is. And In the entrepreneurial space, you might offer coaching one-on-one, or you might offer a mastermind or a course. There's the product that you're offering or the service that you're giving. I like to call those client-facing contracts. And then we have collaboration contracts in the entrepreneur world. Who am I collaborating with to build a course? And how are we going to divide the proceeds? Or if I'm asking somebody to do affiliate marketing, how is that going to work between us? If I'm building a business with somebody as a partnership together, how are we going to work together? So client contracts and collaboration contracts. Those are the two main things. And when you start to think about who you are in relationship with in your business. Anytime you're in relationship with someone, you're in a contract. Whether it's written down in black and white or not, you are in contract or relationship.
0: As a podcaster, I'm realizing that I should probably have, well, I've started to, it's kind of hit or miss right now. If I remember or not, I need to have like a system in place. But as far as an agreement, a podcast agreement for guests, how does that differ from a contract?
1: There's a sliding scale of formality. So there's a formal agreement. For example, our wine shop, we have a lease agreement with our landlord. It's written, it's signed, it's documented, it's a whole thing. If you, maybe something a little less formal, but equally as enforceable, if you're offering a course online and somebody's clicked through to purchase it you should have terms of service it's not negotiable you didn't go back and forth on it but you've been really clear about what you're offering and why and for how much and what they're getting that might be a little less formal but equally as enforceable then there's the contracts that you and I had we're in contract today for me to show up on your podcast as a guest we didn't document anything sign it and write it. we texted back and forth we made some plans you sent me a link but you asked me to show up at a certain date and time and i agreed to do that now when you are hosting a podcast if you wanted to send an email to your guest to say here's how i want you to show up here's how i want you to promote my show on the back end I'm going to need the following bits of information from you to move forward. If we respond and say, yes, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to be on your show. We're in contract, less formal, but every bit is effective.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking in terms of like an agreement where it's in writing and it's basically saying that as the podcast host that I can use the audio, however, because apparently sometimes this is what I've heard. Someone will put out an episode, but then... At some point later, the guests will come back and say, actually, can you take that episode down now because of X, Y, Z? And that, I guess, an agreement helps navigate that. Or what are your thoughts on that type of it? A written agreement that they just signed that says, basically, you own the audio, you could do whatever
1: with it. And that, basically, they can't tell you to take it down, I guess. Right. And you can repurpose it or use clips from it in your promotional materials. So here's the pushback that I get from folks in this space is a formal signed contract feels weird. Mm. It feels a little off-putting. Maybe it pushes guests away. That's the pushback I get. So Yeah, you could have a written contract, particularly with some of the bigger guests. If you've invested time and effort and money to bring guests on, then that, I like to say that the bigger the ticket, the more formal the process should be. But we form a contract. We form something legally binding. If you send me an email and you say, hey, here's how I run my show. Here's how I plan to use the audio and or video. And here's how I roll, right? If I email back and say, okay, I'll be there. You've got a contract. We have an agreement on how we're going to proceed. And then if I were to come back to you a year later, it makes it a whole lot easier for you to pull that email and my, okay, I'll be there and say, hey, I told you this is what I was going to do. And this is how we're going to go. It did, It takes the emotion out of the conversation. It diffuses the situation because it's there. documented.
0: Okay. So maybe in this type of situation, do it through email versus some document that they sign because it might scare people away or it's too formal, but an email eno- is enough to
1: to document that. It's enough. It, I mean, again, the level of formality versus the the risk involved you've got to balance that let's talk about counter offers though so that your audience understands okay let's say that you sent me an email that said here are the following five ways that i manage my podcast and if you are in agreement with these i would love to have you on please respond that you accept this and i respond back and i say yeah cool cool that's all good." Except, I don't agree that you can use the information for anything more than to put it on the podcast and the YouTube. And I want the option to say, take it down here later. That's a counter offer. That's not an agreement because we're not fully aligned in how we plan to go forward. At that point, it's up to you to decide. If you want to proceed under what I've proposed, if you want to accept those limitations, if you say, okay, in this one instance, I'll agree to that, I'll make an exception for you, let's move forward as you've presented. Then if an issue were to come up a year later, you've got the documentation that says this is how we agreed to proceed. Is that helpful?
0: Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that before. So is that kind of like contract negotiation, basically?
1: You've gone back and forth. You understand when you are in complete agreement about how things are going to move forward, then go forward and you've got clarity. But if there's a pushback, then go back and forth until you get real clarity. I would say that if you are a podcaster and you have sponsorship agreements and you are receiving money in exchange to promote somebody's product on your podcast. If it were me, I would want that in a more formal documented situation because there's money going back and forth. How many times are you going to roll it? How long is the segment going to be? Is the price based on the number of downloads? All of that, you want to flesh out and that should be more formal.
0: Yeah, because in that particular instance, there's also, in addition to the things you mentioned, there's also, well, is this ad going to run for just a particular period of time or amount of time or for a particular number of downloads? Or is it going to remain in place in perpetuity forever? Because in that case, then it's actually worth more. So definitely, I think, making that very clear. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, You had mentioned before we got started was about deplatforming. I'd love to hear exactly what that is and maybe some examples of that and what we should do about that.
1: Yeah. So I'll start by saying that I am not a First Amendment attorney, but I got curious about this when a friend of mine, actually the one that hosted that trip to Italy that turned my world upside down and landed me in the entrepreneur space she had a podcast going where she was talking about vitamins and vegetables having healing properties not as an alternative to cancer treatment but as a supplement to cancer treatment vegetables might be good for us basically was what she was saying and she got a notice from the platform i won't name it on which she housed all of her courses where she received payment from her client, where she had her entire email list. They said, you're done. We're shutting you down for spreading misinformation. Now, who at a technology company decides that discussions about vitamins and vegetables are misinformation and reads peer-reviewed studies and, and that kind of thing? I, you know, I questioned that, but she was in a pickle because her entire business was set up there. Okay. And she called me just really upset, saying my First Amendment rights have been violated. I said, girl, no, your First Amendment rights have not been violated. Yes, they have. No, they haven't. Back and forth for a little while. Well, your First Amendment right to free speech is with respect to the government, not passing laws with certain exceptions, not passing laws to shut you down and inhibit your speech. That's the government. But when you're on a platform When you build your business on somebody else's space, whether your courses, your podcasts are aired on different platforms, you are building a house on rented land and you need to be prepared for somebody to take issue with even the most innocuous thing and be able to be nimble enough to have your content handy and move it. Have it somewhere else stored other than that platform and be able to move it. Otherwise, it's it's very costly. It's inefficient and it shuts your business down. Mm-hmm. I know
0: people who, instead of having a website, they'll have a Facebook page. And it's good to have a Facebook page and all the social medias and all this stuff. But that's where all their customers are. That's where people find them. That's where they post their pictures and all this stuff. And I think... In this day and age, first of all, you should have a website. Not that that couldn't get potentially shut down, though. I don't know. I use
1: WordPress. The website belongs to you, but the email list, let's say you're running the email list through a CRM. Mm -hmm. I would suggest that periodically you pull that email list down.
0: And store it on a hard drive somewhere. Oh, okay. I was thinking, because people say you own your email list, but I mean, if you're using some third-party software to send out your emails and all of this stuff, technically, do you really own it? So that's a good idea to every now and then maybe once a month or something, export your email list in a spreadsheet or whatever, so that if that happens, you can then go to a different platform. And then, yeah, definitely, I think having a website versus just a Facebook page or whatever, because not only the potential of being shut down for no good reason, I mean, the platform itself, whatever platform it is, could shut down. I mean, that happened to MySpace, although I think it's actually still there, yeah. but it's not the same type of thing. Plus the algorithms in different platforms are always changing. So people aren't even seeing your stuff. So I definitely agree on that as well. Now, as far as courses go, I had never heard of a course platform shutting you down. So that's good for me to know too, because I'm actually working on a course right now. So I need to make, not that I wouldn't do this, but I need to double check and make sure all my videos and this, that, and the other is saved. Somewhere else as well. Do you recommend like just a Dropbox or Google Drive, or even I guess maybe the hard drive on your computer, or maybe multiple places?
1: I would put it in more than one place. I would just have it at the ready because what my friend faced, very talented entrepreneur, successful entrepreneur, but that information over years of time is in different places. So if as you start to upload it to a platform, just also duplicated into some place that is a backup space for you so that if goodness forbid you have to at a moment's notice change it over to a different platform it's all right there otherwise you've got to stay on that platform download it grab it put it up on another one and the quotes that she got for having to do that were in the thousands and thousands of dollars Mm. or you do it yourself and you shut yourself down for a very long time. And okay, a lot of the folks listening might be course creators. Did you promise your audience lifetime access? If you did and you shut down, what do you do? Where does it go? How do you get in touch with them to let them know that it's changed? It's a scary world, but it's a lot less scary if you plan for it. And from a company perspective, because, you know, I represented companies for a long time and I tell clients who have platforms of their own websites of their own to have terms and conditions of use in place. This is my platform. This is my sandbox. Here's how we're going to play in it. And if everybody doesn't play nicely, I will take you off. So it's just good business for companies to have these in place. How they apply it is hard to anticipate, but there's no negotiation when you sign onto a platform. Right. Mm -hmm. You accept what they've got to offer Mm so so I'm saying just bubble wrap yourself plan for the unexpected and so how do you uh, I guess
0: now help entrepreneurs you have sandstarlaw.com is that the place that people should go to if they want to learn more about you and working with you and I know you had mentioned earlier that you're working on a course as well that isn't out yet
1: yes yeah okay so I do legal work through sandstarlaw.com. You can find me there. There's a lead magnet there. that are the five basic legal foundations that every entrepreneur needs to have in place. And it walks through those. It's just a good checklist to have in your back pocket. But in the meantime, what I have learned in the little while I've been representing entrepreneurs, and you and I talked about this, is Entrepreneurs want to figure it out for themselves. They don't always want done for you. And I think it is a great idea for an entrepreneur to want to be an owner of a business who understands the ins and outs of the legal pieces of their business so that they can manage some of that on their own without an attorney. And so I'm developing a court launching soon to just empower folks To understand the legal basics, to understand how to negotiate a contract, to understand the 10 things you really need to look at if somebody puts a contract in front of you, what are the pitfalls, what are the negotiation strategies, how to move through that. So you don't need a lawyer, but you also, you haven't just grabbed a form off of the interwebs and thrown your name in there and your business name and don't understand what you're putting in front of folks
0: yeah that sounds like a really helpful course i might have to take that when it becomes available so i guess people can go they can get the lead magnet and then when the course comes out they'll probably be notified if they're interested in that
1: that and follow me hang out with me on instagram at kickash law we have a good time there i offer tips tricks insights. Tales from the Trenches, all of that. Well, awesome.
0: I'll also have show notes with links to everything at thesarahstjohn.com forward slash Ashley. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: I am so grateful to spend this time with you and nerd out on some contract stuff.
0: Are you a frugalpreneur looking to connect with like-minded individuals? Join our community on Slack. Connect with fellow listeners